2: Hey, overdraft Draft Fees. Good news ahead. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool Analyst, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's it going today?
0: Pretty good. It's been a while since I've done one of these with you. I'm happy to be here.
2: Well, I always like to, to tap you if we're going to talk about... Uh Banking and financials, because you're one of the people who studies that. You you get it in a way that I, I don't think I quite do. And we're gonna talk about some some regional bank earnings. But before we do, I want to talk about something the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau announced yesterday that I'm trying to make sense of that is around overdraft protection. So it sounds like what they're going after is those large overdraft fees that nobody likes. They say they can save uh, people about 3.5 billion. So what is this, and how much of an impact is it going to have on
0: banks? Well, I mean, first of all, yes, I'm a bank investor, but I'm also a human being first, so I think this is a good thing. Yes, banks make money off these, and this will help people. But you got to realize that the average person who takes an overdraft are like the bank's most vulnerable customers, and the banks are literally taking money from people who don't have any money. and it's it's something that's needed to be fixed for a while now. But just looking through the numbers this will have an impact on banks for sure. Banks make about 9 billion dollars a year on overdraft fees. And of course the banks are pushing back on this rule. I mean they're a business at the end of the day and they're arguing that this is going to make it harder for banks to offer overdraft protection to customers if they're not allowed to charge for it. But on the other hand the CFPB proposal clearly gives banks permission to recoup their costs. So it's not going to, they're not going to lose money by extending overdraft protection. They can charge a reasonable interest rate if they want to give an overdraft loan, or they can charge a reasonable fee, which $35, if I overdraft my bank account by $10, is that really a reasonable fee? No, no that's 350% interest and most overdrafts are paid back within three days. So This is something that's needed to, needed to be reformed for a while. A lot of banks make a lot of money off these, but it's an income stream that i'm I have to say i'm I'm happy to take the hit on as a bank investor
2: yeah i I would agree with that. It's interesting because you've got the two pathways there where they can either do the the loan or they can do that charge. So if they do the loan, it sounds like then it sort of functions as as any other traditional loan and gets subject to uh, a whole bunch of uh, legislation that way
0: yeah they have to disclose the interest rates and and things to that effect and i mentioned that banks make 9 billion dollars on overdraft fees that's between the 175 largest banks that's not that much it sounds like a big amount of money and it is but i mean you know jp morgan chase could afford to absorb that and still be profitable so it, It's not a giant amount of money in the grand scheme of things, this is not a giant revenue center for the banks. At the end of the day, banks still make the bulk of their money on things like charging interest on loans, investment banking fees, mortgage origination fees. This is not a giant fee income stream for most banks. It will be a hit, but it's not going to you know, decimate their quarterly earnings or anything like that.
2: Yeah, and it's just it's just for the big banks with over uh, I think it's about over ten billion. So it's one hundred and seventy five banks of institutions total.
0: Yeah, it's it's this is not going to hurt your your regional banks can still charge whatever they want for or your your local banks can still charge pretty much whatever they want for overdrafts under this proposal. They're going to have to lower their fees to compete. Um, But yeah, this only affects banks that have over ten billion in assets, and I mean pretty much every bank that you is a household name in America.
2: Yeah. Well let's talk a little bit about those regional banks. Cause last week we had the big banks reporting. It was it seemed to me to be a mixed bag. If the the quarter before was like a very big quarter for them, this this one was a little different. But now we're looking at smaller and regional banks. So what kind of questions are you asking yourself as you look at some of these earnings coming in?
0: Well, and like you said, it's a mixed bag. So there is it's kind of definitely on a case by case basis what I want to see. Net charge off rates are a big thing right now. Uh, it's looking like we're going to get the so-called soft landing in the economy. A recession would be terrible for banks. Recession's lead to you know higher defaults. Not only that, but much lower loan demand. So they're not any not originating many new loans. And net charge off rates at the moment aren't out of control. I'm sure we're going to talk about this a little bit more later. But that's one big thing I'm watching. Uh, deposit bases. Uh, a lot of bank customers, myself included. Have moved a lot of their balances away from the big banks and even the big regional banks that don't pay very much on checking and savings accounts, uh, in favor of higher yield online banks, uh, CDs, and banks are realizing a little too late that they need to raise their deposit yields to compete. Uh, some banks have done a great job of this. Uh, Capital One is one one example that's kind of been very very proactive with competing with the online banks with like high yield CDs and things like that. But banks like Bank of America and Wells Fargo, not so much. So one thing I'm watching is how much of the deposits are still flying out the door, and the answer is quite a bit. And net interest margins are another thing. One thing that people don't realize is, yes, interest higher interest rates are good for bank loans, in the sense that you know now instead of a five percent average rate on auto loans, you're getting about a ten percent average rate on new auto loans. But the loans on the bank's balance sheets. For the most part, the majority of them were originated in pre high interest rate times. So most of their loans are not high yielding, but 100% of their deposits are becoming higher yielding. So the higher interest rates are actually being more of a negative on the bank in terms of interest margins than a lot of investors would expect. And finally, I'll stop rambling after this the FDIC's special assessment, speaking of regional banks are hitting all of the bigger banks, including a lot of the big regional banks like the ones we're going to talk about, because of those bank failures we had in 2023. Um, think of this as like if you're HOA, if it has to replace the pool, you might get a special assessment that year that helps them cover the cost of it. The FDIC had to replace a lot of people's money with bank failures. so A lot of the banks are getting hit with special assessments uh, in order to cover it.
2: Yeah, I've been, I've been watching that in the earnings and it's, it's sort of like a shorthand to see how big the bank is depending on how, how much they had to pay as part of this special assessment.
0: Yeah, and some of them are pretty high.
2: <laughs> yeah, some of them are very high, especially JPMorgan. Like you mentioned, credit provisions. I want to talk about quickly about Discover Financial, which not not a bank, but also not not a bank because uh, you know, like like Amex, it's it you know it takes on the loans itself, and they added a billion to their credit loss provisions. So, like you said, the banks are still increasing these provisions, and most of the net losses so far that we've seen are still they're below pre pandemic levels, but they are rising. So I, or should we be worried yet? I'm st- I'm at the point where I'm like an ear is up.
0: I'm a little worried. Like I said before, it's kind of on a case by case basis. Some banks it seems to be progressing better than others. And you're right, the banks are generally increasing their provisions, which means they have enough in reserves to cover what they expect to lose, and then a little bit more. Uh, Wells Fargo, for example, raised their provision by 34 percent year over year in the fourth in the fourth quarter. Um, fueled by uh, credit cards and commercial real estate loans. Surprise, surprise. I know we'll talk about commercial real estate a little bit later, um, but if you look at the two big regional banks that reported this week, U.S. Bancorp and Truist Financial, one did one is significantly lower than pre-pandemic rates. That would be U.S. Bancorp, and that charge-off rate is three basis points lower than in comparable 2019. Uh, and remember, in 2019, the economy was doing very well, so that's a strong pre-pandemic time. Um, but on the other hand, Truist is about 10 basis points higher than it was in comparable 2019 times, and not only that. Right now, their net charge-off rate is 0.5%. They're expecting that to rise to 0.65% uh, in 2024. So that would be significantly higher than pre-pandemic levels. So, like I said, it's kind of a mixed bag. Truist is one of the few banks that actually gives forward guidance on that. Uh, so it's really tough to, you know, know what management's thinking when it comes to net charge-offs in a lot of cases. But it's yeah, it's it's making me take notice, and it's making me a little bit cautious. And a lot of banks are projecting revenue to decline a little bit year over year in 2024, and that's a big reason, or I'm yeah. sorry, earnings, uh, yeah. to decline.
2: Well, you just mentioned U.S. Bancorp. Uh, I was listening to their earnings call. One of the things they talked about was uh, the cost of retaining customer deposits, and that they're really having to to go out there and spend more money than than they used to. Is this something that's impacting a lot of the regional banks?
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, U.S. Bancorp mentioned it. Truist actually gave some really great figures on that. Their that interest margin fell by 27 basis points year over year. And here, so here are the stats. This is kind of what I was talking about with. A lot of the loans on their balance sheet are still paying low yields from years ago, while all of their deposits are are now higher yielding. The yields on Truist's earning portfolio are up by 95 basis points year-over-year, meaning that their average loan is paying 0.95% higher of an interest rate than it was a year ago. The average cost of its interest-bearing liabilities, which primarily means its deposit base, is up by 164 basis points year-over-year, so 1.64%. And not, it's not only the deposits are, are at higher yields; the cost of banks to say issue long-term debt is a lot higher than it was. The cost to borrow. Yeah, this is what the the federal funds rate's all about, uh, and and the Fed's benchmark, benchmark interest rates or the you know the interbank lending rates; those are a lot more. So banks are paying a lot more on capital than they're making on loans, but. They're still not paying as much as a lot of the higher-yielding options like online CDs and things like that. So The cost of retaining customer deposits is a concern, and not only is it a concern, it's, it, yes, it's costing more, but it's not terribly effective if I'm looking at their deposit basis. Yes, um, banks are retaining their deposits, but Truist lost a total of $23 billion of deposits over the past year. $23 billion, and This is a regional bank, this isn't one of the giant ones. And 're a regional bank that operates in pretty you know attractive market environments uh, in the, in the the Sun Belt region so it, yes they need to pay more to retain their deposits but customers are still looking to maximize yield and you're not going to do that with branch-based banks for the most part
2: truest is interesting because they reported their earnings they had a loss uh, and they are forecasting a revenue drop of about one to three percent for the fiscal 2024. But they also talked about that regional advantage that you just talked about. So they're in the in the South, uh, in the in the Sun Belt area and i was thinking about this as as an overall look. So last year, you know, we had after the banking crisis, we had that flight to safety to the big banks. Then we had what you talked about right now with the the rate chasing. All of a sudden everybody realized like, hey, if i put my money over in, you know, in a in a CD or or in one of the online banks, maybe i can get a better rate. Now, i'm not sure what the financial story is is and Looking at Truest, is that regional advantage? You know, they see it as, as a as a huge thing. I don't know. What do you think?
0: I mean, I would say yes. I mean, I'm in, I'm in Truest country. I don't know if there are Truest branches up where you are. Oh yeah. I'm I'm definitely in Truest country. There there um, they if everyone knows they came from BB&T and SunTrust, and if you didn't know that, you know that now. Uh, SunTrust was a big big bank in Florida. That's where I had my bank account when I lived down in Florida. It's generally market environments. Not all of their markets, but most of their markets have above-average wage growth, above-average job growth, positive net migration, which has been a big trend since the pandemic started, into the Sunbelt region, and and relatively lower, co- or relatively affordable housing costs, which is very attractive. Um, people can still afford a mortgage there. Yeah. So I, I think it's a it is an advantage. It's going to be more of a long-tailed advantage. Um, However, like I think I could see it fueling growth better than for, you know, as opposed to a bank that's based primarily in like New York and New Jersey, where you're seeing kind of population outflows over time, or at least you know slower net migration. I mean, I'm from New Jersey, and most, most of my friends have gotten out of there. No offense to New Jersey. But I, I, I do see it as an advantage, but not a big enough differentiator that that is the investment thesis all by itself.
2: Well, with regional banks, we've also got uh, commercial real estate as a as a bigger portion of things. You and I can't get together without talking about real estate. I've, I, I, I'm pretty sure that's in our contracts. So let's let's do that. So with Truist, you've got a fair amount of commercial real estate loans. You know, we both keep an eye on this. Last year, the big concern was office, but I'm also starting to look at multifamily for signs of weakness. This is traditionally a really safe area. It's around 33 percent of truest loans. You know, there's not a vacancy problem with multifamily the way there is with office, but there is a rent growth slowing problem. So, what are you thinking about the commercial loan liability for regionals right now?
0: It's really interesting. You mentioned multifamily, like you said, everyone always talks about you know other property types, specifically office when it's when you hear about the commercial real estate. State crisis. Uh, it's it's usually referring to office. Um, you know, I there's a lot of empty office buildings in my town. I'm sure there's a bunch near you. Mm-hmm. But multifamily. It's it's a really interesting thing in that there's a lot of refinancing risk that's going to happen in the next few years. Uh, I recently interviewed Willie Walker, the CEO of Walker and Dunlop. They're the biggest multifamily uh, focused commercial real estate finance company in the world, or not in the world in the U.S. And he was he pointed out that over the this the next 3 years 2024 through 2026 there are over 3 times as much multifamily loan volume that will need to be refinanced as in the last 3 years so a, a lot of these loans multifamily loans are not like the mortgages that you and I would get to buy a house in that you just pay your mortgage it, you know the balance goes down over time they're generally interest only loans that need to be refinanced every so often and a lot of them are coming due within the next few years I'd be curious to see how many of those are truest loans I only know the the data for Walker and Dunlop's loans because they don't you know banks don't like break out individual loan data usually yeah. but I would have to say that that refinancing uh, proportion is probably consistent with what you're going to find in truest portfolio um, so that's a big risk especially if interest rates stay elevated and that's a big if right now most experts expect interest rates to fall over the next year or two. So the question it's going to be a real balancing act between how much refinancing volumes coming due and the interest rates you can get because you know as well as I do commercial real estate assets derive most of their value from you know how much they earn their owners over over and above the the cost of of ownership so yeah there's not a vacancy problem in multifamily there's still a housing crisis in the United States so there's a lot of demand um the U.S. economy has the ability to absorb about, you know, depending on who you ask, about 3 million new housing units. Most of that would be multifamily housing, not single family. Um, so th- there is a lot of demand. That's the good thing, but there is that refinancing risk, and that's what I would be keeping an eye on.
2: Yeah, yeah, me too, especially. Yeah, and, and the interest rates remain this sort of un- unknowable question for the future. Well, thanks for breaking it down with me today, Matt.
0: Of course. Glad to be here.
2: We talk about a lot of stocks on the show, but it's just a peek at the Motley Fool's investing universe. This year, we're rolling out a new offering. It's called Epic Bundle. The service includes seven stock recommendations every month, model portfolios, and stock rankings, all based on your investor type. We're offering Epic Bundle to Motley Fool money listeners at a reduced rate as a thanks for listening to the show. So for more information, head to www.fool.com slash epic198. We'll also include a link in the show notes for you. Up next, Asit Sharma joins Mary Long for a closer look at a company that might just help you get paid.
3: So Paycom is a software as a service, a SaaS company that provides human capital management solutions. Basically, what that means is it's a company that helps other companies keep track of their employees. From, they use this phrase, through, from recruitment through retirement. So There are a handful of other companies that offer similar services. Many also happen to start with pay. But from the user, the employer perspective, what differentiates Paycom from its competitors?
1: Mary, if you are a user of Paycom, let's say that you administer human capital management solutions in your company, it's got a bit of a nifty edge over some other software services you can look at. For example, this company takes information from the background check of of a potential employee all the way through employment. They happen to be one of the biggest background check companies in the U.S. It's part of their revenue stream. But from the beginning, HACOM decided that it wanted to pull information forward so that businesses didn't have to keep re entering bits of information. And another interesting thing that they do is they develop most all of their services in house. They love to develop software internally. So if you're using their system, you get a nice dashboard. You can move around quite easily from one part of the service to another. From The payroll administration to looking at benefits for your employees to tax filings, which happen to be automated. It's one of the great services they offer. They can automate that whole worrisome process of filing quarterly returns for your company uh, through the software. So I think that it attracts uh, on the basis of usability for businesses that are looking at it and functionality. We'll get a little bit into its automation uh, creds in just a bit, but those are the the major reasons that attract users to the platform.
3: And from an investor perspective, one of the things that sticks out when I look at Paycom are its gross margins. They've been hovering about at about eighty four percent since twenty sixteen. That's higher than a lot of its competitors like ADP, Oracle, Paychecks, Paylocity. So, what's the story there?
1: One of the things that you must do if you are in this business is to strike a balance between payroll administration and then offering all these other services that line up under that human capital management banner that you and I were both mentioning. So, How employees can save for retirement, what types of benefits they're eligible for, working with wage garnishments. There's an innumerable amount of services that you have to offer. The approach of big payroll providers like the ADPs and Paychecks and the Oracles of the world has been to acquire smaller companies, parts and pieces, to be able to offer everything to their the businesses that they deal with. But this becomes a little bit of a clunky uh, exercise from a user interface experience. and It also leads to, I think, a bit of a higher gross margin for Paycom since they develop everything, as I said before, internally. If you're not trying to buy smaller companies and then spend money to integrate the services and then spend money on the support when things don't work out you actually have a smoother uh, sales to cost of revenue relationship and I think that leaves you more uh, or a bigger chunk I should say to then have your fixed cost run against which leads to hopefully a better operating margin as well
3: there are all these different elements and segments of the solutions that Paycom offers are they all or nothing do companies have to buy into everything or can they are there certain segments that that garner a lot of attention and traction and others that not so much
1: yeah this is a great question you know paycom is a little different than most of the companies you'll look at be they really big or just small entrants into the space and that they're Pricing is opaque. You can't go online and try to Google up uh, a chart of Paycom services versus ADPs. So, we don't have a very clear picture on exactly how the services are offered up. But what we do know is that Paycom wants to sell its customers sort of a everything in one place solution. That's the default. But they will offer businesses the ability to choose a la carte. Uh, from their menu. So you can go either route, but what they're going to try to do up front is to say, look, in this single pane of glasses, single dashboard, you get all our features for X price.
3: You teased out that automation piece. So I feel like today you can't look a Paycom without catching wind of this thing called Betty. It's not a person, it's a service. So maybe let's start with what is Betty?
1: So, Betty is basically an app that allows an employee to enter his or her own information on benefits and also time during a payroll period. And this cuts down errors for the company that's running the payroll. This is a really great thing for companies because it's Notoriously difficult to get a payroll right, especially when you have, well, let's say, a flux of employees coming and going. For businesses that experience that, payroll is, is really difficult, and it's a cost. It's a cost center. So what Betty does is allows the data source, that's the employee, to input the information. When you cut down those errors, you cut down the reruns of payroll. What we heard from Paycom last quarter is yes, the Betty is getting a little bit. Too good for its own good because with this reduction in error, those are fewer extra payrolls run. So that actually cannibalizes a bit of revenue. Now, Chad Richeson, the CEO, has been pretty adamant his whole career that he wants the best outcomes for customers. So he is willing to take a little bit less revenue if the user experience is better for the customer. He will sell them more value-added products down the line. So I think we've got a a really temporary blip here with the company. There's one other part of that puzzle that investors should pay attention to. There is a group that upsells services within uh, this company. They have been growing year after year after year. Last year was the first year that they pulled back a little bit and said, um, instead of trying to upsell, we're going to spend more time on client premises with customers, helping them get value for the products that they have. Richardson was a little concerned that they were doing too much upselling. so That also hit the top line and the projections for this year. A little kink there, but I believe it's a blip in a longer-term story that looks pretty bright.
3: Paycom is a software company, it's also profitable, it's also quickly growing, it also pays a dividend. All of this feels rare for a software company. and Yet, in large part because of these cannibalization and worries connected to Betty that we talked about, the stock has slumped a lot after its latest earnings call, which happened in November of last year. The stock's now trading at under 35 times earnings. That's basically half of what it was at, in 2022. And it's down from over 180 in 2020. How are you thinking about valuation right now? Um, and do you f- feel that this is just a massive buying opportunity that others are missing?
1: I don't think it's massive. I think it is a buying opportunity, but investors who invest in the apparel industry, I think, are looking for a few more things out of this company. Number one, their customer service really isn't up to par. They spent so much time investing in really a seamless experience without integrating a bunch of third party tools that they have under invested. In areas where their bigger competitors have been really on the ball. So, one quick example Paychex, since like 2018, has been using AI to invest in customer facing bots so people can get quick answers when they have issues with their payrolls. And to date, we don't see that out of this company. I think also there are a few other friction points because they are so let's do everything in house. They don't have a great API or, or an API that I've seen that easily connects to benefit providers. So there's this whole uh, interchange between uh, benefit providers that is a little easier with the bigger platforms that this company doesn't have. They need to work on that as well. And thirdly, I think people are wondering if there's another company which builds something from the ground up as well, is this more of an idea or a competitive mode? Mary, maybe you and I, if we were really technically skilled, could try to build something similar with the idea that let's get the data first off when someone comes through the door and let that follow them through the organization and also offer an app where they can put this information in and have these seamless perils. That itself isn't something that's unassailable, but for their bigger competitors, they really don't want to. Pull their customers out of their models that currently exist. It's really, really hard to tell a company, "Uh, we're going to do something similar to this process you've heard about, but it'll take four weeks of implementation and the perils will be manual during that time. (laughs) So, this is one edge that Paycom has. It's really difficult to recreate it on an enterprise level. But I think investors are just sort of weighing the puts and takes of this and saying, yeah it's probably a buying opportunity, but it's not that the whole market has missed the story here. They see it realistically, I think.
3: Chad Richardson is the CEO of Paycom. He founded the company in 1998 and again remains at the helm to this day. We love a founder-led company here. Do you have any particularly strong takes on Richardson, his vision, his leadership, or how he's executed
1: that vision? Sure. Let's get the um, elephant out of the room first. I mean, Richardson has one of the most lucrative pay packages in all of Wall Street. He got, I think, $200 million worth of stock incentives a few years ago. That, if Paycom stock performs could be worth into the billions in a few years. He's uh, gotten a lot of pushback from that. Now, on the other hand, what I like about him is he's performed. This is a company that's really outperformed since they've been public. As you point out, very cash flow positive. They are contemplating more share buybacks. They have initiated a dividend. And I like Richardson's sort of lean attitude towards running his business. He doesn't like debt, so they've paid down all their debt, I think, except for maybe $29 million. Um, They like to generate the cash and then invest it. There's not a lot of waste in the organization. and He's been pretty good at inspiring his employees to go and fight against the bigger players by developing their own stuff. I think he's kept the R&D uh, engineers very happy at Paycom. They like to innovate, and I think they will continue to. So I think in terms of vision, leadership, execution, he's got all that, and the company, you know, has historically deserved the multiples, the rich multiples the market has given it. It's just with this bump, with uh, Betty starting to look like it may be too good for its own uh, stuff. You do have uh, this crossroads for the business and the stock. But uh, we'll see. We'll monitor it this year, quarter by quarter. Maybe you and I can, you know, chat again later this year and see how they're doing.
3: Yeah, we can do a check-in. And if things don't go according to plan, then that side hustle that you mentioned of us starting our own version of Paycom sounds like a, a promising opportunity.